this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Join us, and this is week two of a a little series that kind of came out of a a very non-technical survey I did of the congregation. I I sent an email just kind of with a few survey-style questions to a a bunch of you saying, like, what sort of things would be really helpful as we plan the preaching schedule, as we plan the sorts of things we wrestle with? And a couple of themes that kept coming up was, was to do the Bible, how we engage with the Bible, what does that mean? And quite sort of, not basic in the bad ones, but foundational questions about that. And also came up questions about, um, quite high up the list, were about human sexuality and relationships. How do we do that well? How do we live faithfully with that? And so this series is trying to get a handle on some of that. By handle, it's just trying to provide something of a framework to have a helpful discussion. And so this is week two of, of that. And, and last week, we, we kind of, we, we started with just, you know, so again, some foundational things um, we start with, with what is the Bible and can we trust it and why is there so many different versions of it? And, and, and then we, we began uh, to ask a question about, well, in light of all that, in light of some of those convictions we may have around that, oh, how do we start to, to read it well? How do we start to read it wisely? And that's where we began to answer that question we want to pick up in that uh, largely this morning. And, and, and so two foundational answers that I'll give you in about a minute. Uh, so you can get the minute version or you can get the 45-minute version if you go back and listen to last week. So was, um, but what we're saying, two foundational things in how we read the Bible well is one, when we start to learn how to read it as a unified story that leads us to Jesus. Which can sound simple, but when we wrestle with something as profound that, and we start talking about shortcuts we can take with the Bible and how to avoid those, um, but one of the foundational things we wrestle with, well, we read the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. And then the other thing we said is there's a foundational thing. We read it well when we remember the end or the goal of why we have the Bible. And so we, 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 the, the whole idea is we, do not, we don't read it so that we can know it and master it. We read it so that we can know him and love him and love him aright through it as we read the text. So it's to that end. And again, these are foundational things. And so, so this, this is where we kind of got to as we finished off uh, last week. So, so we said the Bible isn't just the Bible. It's not just you know, another series of books or a library of books, we refer to it as Holy Scripture. And without really even using the word very much last week, we implied and we're wrestling in a sense with saying, look, this Holy Scripture, this book, is in many ways, is, is, has an authority in this place, has an authority among us and over us. That's that word, isn't it? Authority, right? Not so popular, and depending on what we mean by it, man, before we pick up the thread again, and we will with that authority word, because I love it, 
Um, we're just going to read the scriptures and listen. So 2 Timothy 3 and 4, and uh, we're going to also read Philippians 3, uh, verse 20. So um, let's pick up 2 Timothy 3, and we'll read to about 4, chapter 4, verse 6. And Lord, would you help us? Spirit, would you help us as we read? Um, which we've come to, as we, as we said at the start, to revere Jesus. Um, so give us the grace as we listen to your scripture, Lord. Amen. So, Second Timothy 3, so mark, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannies and Jambres, great names by the way, I feel like they could be great, like BBC, BBC TV presenters, honestly. There's a program there somewhere. But just as Jannies and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected, but they'll never get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life. My purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those whom from you've learned it and how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures which, you are able to make you wise, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every Good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will, put, will, will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of, of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And just Philippians 3 Verse 20 for a moment. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So 
uh, weighty reading um, from the New Testament. And so the goal, I guess, this week is that we, as, as we reflect on this theme, that in some ways the goal and challenge is to try and keep our heads in a culture which has itching ears. It's, it's just that challenge that Paul gives to Timothy. Like, how can we genuinely keep our heads in a culture fast-moving, fast-changing, with itching ears? That, uh, so it's about learning to read the Bible wisely, learning to allow it to, for God to speak and allow to God to work in us and through us. And I guess that allowing our often disorderly lives to become ordered and ordered around God. And, and so we can't, we, we, can't, we can't bypass the sense, the, the weight. I don't, I don't know what you felt as I read the scripture. But do you know, there's a weight that you, you, I think we should feel with that. And it's back to this, this authority word that I don't think we can lose. Just to give Andrew the heads up, the TV's gone blank, that I need. And uh, I, I've been wrestling with this authority uh, word uh, over, over the last few weeks. I even went into the, the vaults as they were. And um, I, I need my clicker working or else I am like up the creek without a paddle, as they say. Um, and I, so, I, I, so there's a really interesting thing as you, as you delve into the vaults of, of Adelaide Place and you turn to, to the Constitution, right? And you'll, you'll find it, it's going to come up on the screen in just a moment, I promise, or else, and I'm stubborn enough to wait, by the way, <laughs> genuinely. I know it's awkward, but here we go. So there we go. The church for which the said trustee shall so hold said subject shall, and it's old by the way, in all time to come, agreeably to their present views and practice, maintain the exclusive authority and entire sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures. So there it is. I said it. It's right in the Constitution. So it means I'm in charge and it means whatever I say goes, deal with it. Here's, uh, here's our Baptist declaration of principle. So if we're a Baptist church, we're part of the Scottish Baptist network and family. And, and so we, we put it like this today. So this is closer in, in more um, modern day parlance, if you will. So that the Lord Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, is the sole and absolute authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And that each church can do what they want. Uh, that each church has liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret and administer his laws. So this, I mean, this, this sort of authority word comes up in lots of different places. And, and I, I kind of be a wee bit anti-authority in my mind. I was explaining to Benjamin, who's uh, doing marching now at Boys Brigade and I was like he's moping about it saying I have to do marching do you know when they'll march and, and, and I was like telling them when I did marching at Boys Brigade I literally whenever they said right turn I deliberately just like on cue took a left turn on purpose and I, 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 I suspect it just was my thing I did it at the displays it was less anti-authority more attention seeking behaviour and <clears throat> nothing's changed but I I, I so, we wrestle with it, don't we? I mean, it's a word, it brings up connotations, right, in, in the world at large. And, and it's strange, because I don't think authority is as bad a thing as we think. It's not as a terrible word as we sometimes make it out to be, because depending on context, authority can mean loads of different things, right? 
If, you know, sometimes we talk about authority in terms of like the, the footballer who, who stamps his authority on the pitch. Do you know who, who influences? And we're like, yeah, like you want the guy who's stamping his authority on the pitch, not the person who's, who's hiding. You know, it's, a, it's a kind of a good thing. Or, or the lecturer, you know, who's, who's somebody who speaks with authority because, you know, they, they are an expert in their field. And so we listen and, and we like it and we learn and we love it. You know, there, we could be out with our friends. Context again. If somebody came in and interrupted our conversation in our restaurant with friends and said, "Like, right, who's in charge here? Who's authority?" You'd be like, "I don't understand you. <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense." You know, in that context, the, 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 it's just a daft question, unless it's about the bill, in which case everybody's like Christian world ducking behind the, you know, the, the under the table. But it just doesn't, as we ask the context of authority in that sense, it's just like, well, yeah, ask us a different question. We don't get what you mean. Or if it's, hence, police car, or you could equally have, like, a judge come down with his hammer. You know, authority in that context, we have a sense of, yeah, it's about issuing a law or passing uh, a sentence or, or trying to modify or restrain wrong behavior. But it has all sorts of, of different Connotations, but it's it's not necessarily a bad word, and and you, you think about it in the context of a culture that will will somewhat, and we're not diving into it massively, but this freedom thing or personal autonomy. Now the Bible doesn't override personal autonomy, but there is this idea that seems to be that that our personal autonomy individually and and that sense of freedom that sometimes the language used is really that's king, and and anything that comes against that, well. We'll push, we'll push right back hard against that. And we see what our freedom is doing to the world around us. You just need to, to look at the, what's happening environmentally in our world. But yeah, that freedom to just do what we want is not really getting us in. It's actually killing us. And, and, and you know, it, it, lastly, if I went into, and some of you have loved ones who have been in theater recently, do you know, when you, if, if you're going under the knife for any sort of operation, do you know what? I don't want them going like, who's in charge? I don't know who's in charge. <laughs> we want to know whose who's head's on the block if this goes wrong because there's something orderly and helpful and right about authority in the right context. And so authority is not necessarily, it's not necessarily a bad word. And from the Bible's point of view and, and, and the, the Declaration of Principle, captures as well, I think, and I stand by this, is that God alone has ultimate authority over our world and lives. And, and this authority he has, has given to Jesus and which Jesus shares with us, his church, who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so when we think about authority, we at least, we don't take what we view by authority and then load that onto scripture. We start to look at what scripture says about authority and we realize that this authority as we find it in the Bible is an authority of the one to create, to rescue, to love, to judge, to sustain and to deliver humanity. That's what he does with his authority. And so it's not such a bad word. So we say, I say all that because this is the sort of conversations Christians have on cultural matters, we don't begin or finish with, oh, I think, or I really think this makes sense. I mean, we're not saying ban your opinion, but ultimately the sort of conversation that we have and we're wanting to have in a space like this is to say, 
however we define it, we are coming and we are wrestling with the one who creates, redeems, loves and rescues, judges, but has an authority over us. And our job is to engage and live not in the first century, not in the 16th century, but to live in the 21st century in Scotland and Glasgow and to figure some things out. And so we then, having said what we said, we, we come back to this idea of, of reading wisely. And we very quickly realize, because of the nature of Holy Scripture, that it, it is given in a way that this has to be true, that as we read it, that discernment is always in operation. There's something of, I think, uh, almost a dualism in my title. It's kind of the wrong title, in a sense. It's kind of Bible and culture. It kind of says, like, you know, the Bible somehow exists in this vacuum, pure and unadorned and untouchable, and then it engages with culture. And of course, if you remember last week, what we, we took a bit of time to say, look at the human production side of the the Bible, as much as the divine, where we talked about that, we say the Bible is as much a, a product of human culture and uh, as anything else. And so, to say it's authoritative it is 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 right and good, but that still leaves us with uh, with lots of things to figure out and lots of things to explore. And so, discernment is always in operation, and I want to show you that. But I mean, th- th- this is not new. This is obviously just, well, at risk of stating the obvious, but there, there was a, a moment in uh, the church history, maybe, I think it was 1950s, that a guy called Niebuhr was, uh, I think it was Richard Niebuhr, might not have been, but I think it was, um, he, he had this sort of typology that was trying to wrestle, wrestle with uh, culture, and it's, in some ways it's quite dualistic, so it's Christ against culture, so a way we modes of engagement is really about withdrawal. Like it's big bad culture out there. Or it was Christ of culture, which was, do you know, there's good stuff in there, it's common good, we need to work with a lot of good things and just add and improve. There's a Christ above culture uh, mode. There was a Christ and culture, which is kind of a bit more the Lutheran tradition, I think. There's different realms. So this is the, 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 the spiritual realm where, where God works and, and the church has influence. And then this is the sacred world, or this is the, the secular realm where um, the state is in charge and, and don't confuse the two. And, and, and in some ways, Niebuhr's problem with his typology of all these different ways of relating to culture is a bit like my title, they all almost presume that we're in this sort of pure position where we can just see truth cleanly and, and 100% purely and therefore and not attached to culture. But, um, but the, the models are, 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 so the models fall down in that sense because actually we are part of the culture. We cannot sit outside of it objectively looking in. But I think at least that wrestling reminds me that, do you know what, we are always in some ways and should be wrestling with what is going on in our world, in our culture. And, and this is the underscores the, the keeping our heads challenged because sometimes we do need to call it withdraw, to pull away from. Sometimes we do need to call it and challenge. Sometimes we do need to join in, celebrate, call out the good, season it and, and promote the common good. But one thing we cannot do is just switch our our minds, our hearts, our, our brains off because discernment is always in operation. We need to keep our head in a culture which has itching ears. 
that we, the itching, it's just such a powerful metaphor, isn't it, of just, just wanting to hear what we want to hear, reading into it what suits us. And so what are the cultural waters we swim in? And it's a genuine question with no answer. What, what are the biggies? What are the things that are going on in our culture? What are the things that are maybe not so much the biggies, but the subtle things that actually are a part of the waters that we swim in that we might need to swim against? Sometimes it's not just the big loud ones that come at us. It's the, it's the more subtle things that fly under the radar and that cut against the story of Jesus. And maybe it's just also on a personal level. It's not just... It sounds all massive in this cultural thing out there, what's going on. It's just maybe, what's going on for you in your life, in your work? What's going on in your home, in your friendships, your neighborhoods that makes you feel pulled towards one thing? And you feel like, you know, should I be joining in? Should I be uh, standing back? Should I be speaking out against? Um, I wonder what those things are. But discernment is always an operation. There was a I read of a guy, I don't quite get the end of the story, but he apparently set out to, to live a year, he took a year of living literally, biblically, and um, starting at Genesis. And I, I never heard how he got on with it, but it, 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 his goal was to live biblically for the year. And I, I don't know if you'll see the problems when you come to like that, that approach. You just, I guess, need to get to something like Genesis uh, 22, Abraham taking Isaac up and, you know, almost killing his son. Or you get to some of the codes about stoning people for You start to realize, that actually, this whole idea of living literally, biblically, can actually, you probably end up in prison by about day five. Do you know, it's, it's that sort of sense of, yeah, of course we should live biblically. That's what we're calling each other to all the time. But yeah... We, we, there's something going on. Discernment is always an operation. The one that gets me often, and I wish I'd spoken up about this a wee bit more, not, the, the only people used to talk about biblical, well, still do, biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Well, like, well, what, what do we mean? What, what, genuinely, what do we mean? If you say biblical manhood, there's so many different types of manhood in the Bible. That if you, are you talking about David? And, you know, the, the stone thing and the, the mighty warrior thing, the, you know, is that the sort of biblical manhood? Or are we talking about Philippians 2, of Christ who descended and gave up his power? And so at, because of that great descent and giving up, pouring out, is that manhood? I mean, you know, we, you start to realize discernment is always in, in operation. And... It, that is to say, we are always picking and choosing when we read the Bible. Now, this may at first sound like taking the legs from under the feet of that authority piece. And in some cases, that might be true, depending exactly what we mean. But I think what we're really saying is that, yes, in a sense, we pick and choose. But what this is really telling us is that we have learned to read the Bible as a unified story that leads us to Jesus. We have learned to discern. We have learned to interpret wisely. Hence why there are parts of the Bible we do not do. And there's parts of the Bible we do do. Because we have learned to discern that it's a story about Jesus and to live wisely in light of that. Discernment is always in operation. I want to give you some examples, not to try and solve them, like genuinely not to try and solve them, 
all individually, but just to show you again that this discernment is always in process. So I'm, not going to, I'm just going to reference these, these parts of Scripture and honestly feel it's there for you to just kind of try and absorb and try and reflect and try and learn. I was determined in my notes to try and not say, like, give, let's try and dispense all the answers. Because A, I don't know them all, but B, it's just not helpful to try and come here and say, here's what you need to think. And so I give you these to try and encourage just some reflection. You take the Lord's Prayer, Luke 11, 2. So very quickly, the way that can get interpreted is, is often when you pray, say. Now, you could just as easily interpret the word that we interpret say as something more with more force. So somebody has put it, a more literal translation could be when you pray, recite. Because the word for say is as a present imperative, which just simply means it's a command. It's a direct command. But of course, most of the Western tradition, their translations, were not massively in the recite the Lord's Prayer every time we meet tradition. So we have discerned, chosen a more general principle that says it's a model and so we and it's, so the translations are more like when you pray, say. So it's less recite, it's say. And it's interesting when you, it, the fact seems to be that the church largely for the majority of history has always said the Lord's Prayer every Sunday and taken that as recite and taken that more literally but particularly evangelical churches we're not, we don't like reciting prayers so we um, we have got a, a something that's more like a model for what it's worth. I think it's probably both and feel like we should be saying it a wee bit more. But even there, you start to realize a very simple thing that we just take as, well, duh, it, it, there, there's, there's discernment already going on. Mark 10, 17 is, is that wonderful, amazing story of the rich young ruler. If you haven't read about it, go and read about it with this. Everybody in Mark's gospel up until this point has turned and put their trust in Jesus when they had a personal encounter with him. And then we have one who perhaps doesn't. Well, who knows? He might, maybe he went away sad because he had to do an incredible thing. Because Jesus tells him, if you want to follow me, if you want to be saved, there's a question he starts with, well, you need to sell everything. Go, you go sell everything and then come back and follow me. And he went away sad because he had lots of stuff. And the way we would tend to, to interpret that text is, is, is there's something about idolatry. And so the principle that we often say is, it doesn't mean literally go and give all your stuff away. It, it means more likely something that we have a, a more like an inner detachment to stuff. And it's about this idolatry thing. And I think that's probably the wise way to go. But does anybody else see how we can just very casually take a very challenging point of Jesus' teaching and for all of us to sit in the rich west and go like, yeah, but it doesn't really mean you actually have to go and give anything away at all. It just means that you, you just have an inner detachment with this stuff. You know, these fancy clothes, they're, they're, I'm, I'm, not inner, I'm not detached. These are kind of just around me. I'm inwardly detached from my car, my house, all my stuff. I mean, I could give it away tomorrow if Jesus really wanted me to. Do you know what I mean? That's the typical approach we would take with that. And so, I'm not saying that's entirely wrong. I'm not saying it's entirely right. I do read that, and just every time I read that passage, go like, oh! But discernment is always in process. Uh, another one in, in 1 Peter 3, 1-6, if you looked it up, you will 
largely find um, three commands for women, attitudes of how women should behave. One is, it says, um, submit, something like that. The command is just submit to, to the man. The other one, then, is about not wearing gold, jewelry, and expensive clothes. And then the other one, there is an inference and a command that says to address, like he gives the example of Abraham and Sarai and says, address the man as Lord. Now, and so many people who want to claim the first command is like, just read it and say it and do it. And then we get to the one about gold and jewelry and we start saying, well, that's more like there's a, a principle behind there. And we start, do you, do you see how it starts to change? And then certainly when it comes to addressing as Lord, I mean, I only occasionally make Claire do that. But you know, it's, it's like there's, there's none of the guys who are saying submit, going about checking the gold jewelry and expensive clothes. And there's certainly none of them saying, call me Lord. And then there's more ways to look at that. But again, we, uh, you can, and I respect people who land in different places with these things, but again, we have to say discernment is always in process. And the last one is, I'll, I'll, you can follow those through, the idea of, of slaves obeying their masters. Uh, I ain't discerning any principle behind that. Slavery is slavery is slavery. And there is something shocking about the Bible. It never fully you know, just comes out and says that was just wrong and needs to be done away with because they were a product of their time when it was taken as rare, taken for granted. And, and science has also changed. That's why I put the last one, to show how science has changed how we read uh, parts of Scripture. And, and I think it helps more wisely. You, the worldview then was the world was flat. And so you see all these allusions to the four corners of the earth because they believed the earth was flat. And, you know, we, we, none of us, do we, read the... Uh, Read it like that. So we start to see that discernment is always in process. And those examples, and there's others, is just to try and not to solve them all, but it's to try and help us wrestle with that. And so what we're saying is there's always, if you like, some sort of form of conservation. But there's also an innovation. This is language that Scott McKnight, a scholar, uses that I find really helpful. There's always the art of in discernment, a conservation of something but there's also an innovation. The brilliant biblical example this is Acts 15 when it comes to the whole thing about circumcision. You know, once they did, it has to be done. They said, no way. And, and the men were waiting in the middle to see who decides how, how it played out. And, you know, there's, a, there's ones who want to conserve. There's ones who want to innovate. There's been times in church history where innovation has gone wrong. And I would say things like when we point towards indulgences and purgatory, and I think we, then we move back to conserve something that was a better way to read it. And so all the while, these things are going on. And so, which kind of keeps provoking this question. So if these things are true, discernment is always in process, in operation. So can we just discern however we want? Do you know? Are we still back to this anarchy of like, uh, okay. Well, I discern differently, and, 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 and so that's probably not going to get us anywhere. So how do we read it well? And I want to offer four things to help us to start to wrestle with, it, with this question that we've already started of reading it well. And I want to start as the, the answers are incomplete. You could probably have 40 other things that would be just as justifiable, but, but listening to what people are saying, you guys we are genuinely wrestling with how to read this better, aren't we? We want to make sense of it for our age in a way that is faithful. 
And so here's, um, here's four things. And the first is probably the most, in some ways, obvious is to study genre and context. And, and this is to varying degrees, right? Some of us will have the skill of language and of parsing you know, Greek sentences into 500 different places and ways. Other of us will, will have different access to different levels of knowledge, but there's something with whatever varying degrees of complexity and skills that we have about just uh, studying the scriptures and appreciating the different genre, if we're reading poetry, if we're reading a form of narrative, if we're reading a, a form of law, or, or however it's a letter, an epistle, whatever it is, just some appreciation of genre and context being, what do the words actually say? <laughs> you know, we don't ever avoid what they actually say, the words around about it, the wider context. And just as a quick example of this, you know, one of the most helpful resources I've seen for a quick access to some of this is the Bible Project's videos. I, I, I remember speaking to a couple just like wading their way through Isaiah and coming out of the end was like, I have not a clue what Isaiah is talking about. I might as well read the phone book for a week, you know, for, for all the good it did. And, and do you know, I would say, like, if you did a five-minute video on the Bible project, on the overview of Isaiah, and then you read it, it's, it's game on. You're going to get way more access to something because you're studying the genre and the context. I'll move on. Second one is about exploring behind, within, and before. This is, this is something that I mentioned because it's part of, I guess, my approach. In some ways, I've been taught for reading, for preaching, um, uh, it, it just helps you. So the behind, the within, and before is to say, to be thinking along for finding the meaning of a passage, to think about behind, what's going on historically in the context. We mentioned the second Timothy. So Timothy, it seems to be what was going on in that context was there was people rising up against with false teaching about the resurrection and about other things, and they were leading house churches in his community, and so there were leaders within it. So he had a nightmare. It wasn't just a culture out there he was wrestling with. He was wrestling with leaders teaching all sorts of things about the resurrection and other things. And when you just hear that, what's going on in the setting, it starts to draw different light into what, that, the, what the, the, the punch of what Paul is getting at. So we think what's behind the historical context, again, with whatever access we have. We think within, it's always, you can never skip out what it actually says, what's in the text, the words, what they mean, and, and some of the grammar. As best we can, we wrestle with that. And then also, before, we, we wrestle with, with before is, is, is a, a symbol for actually what's going on in our world. How do we read it? How do we process through the, what is going on in our world? And how does that inform how we read the text? And it's saying, look, and, and current movement is towards saying it's all reader-centered, so before, like, we read into it what we want. And actually, I find it helpful just to think through what's, there's, a, there's something about holding these things together, so we read behind within. This one's a biggie, and I'm not going to do it justice, but it's to say that we read with the community. And this means many things, but I want to be clear on one thing. One of the things it means is, yeah, we read the Bible together. It's read out loud together, it's meant to be read together. We read it in our communities, we read it with each other. It's meant to be read in spirit-filled communities. The Spirit helps us in community to discern what he's saying. We read it also from the perspective of Christians around the world. Well, I, I, 
Latin American will say about a particular text or somebody uh, in Nigeria will say about a particular text will sound different at times to what we will see in the text. And actually there's something about listening with the community of faith that means actually it's not just about what we have seen and take from the text. It means the broader as well. But also there, it means, and Scott McKnight uses this word, he talks about reading um, with tradition, not through tradition, which is an important distinction. What he means by through tradition is if it's some sort of sift or sieve that just kind of tells us what is true and what is authoritative and would be more down the, the Roman Catholic stream. And he's saying, we don't do that, but that does not mean, he, he refers to an anarchy of a misunderstanding of a, a doctrine called the priesthood of all believers, which is to say that we are all able, yes, access to God, no priest necessary, but it doesn't, and we can read the Bible for ourselves, but it does not mean we can just all come to the perfect right understanding of doctrine and in a public way can declare this, that, or the other thing. And so he's saying, look, we've misunderstood this whole doctrine to say, like, it doesn't mean that you can just act as an individual and figure it all out by yourself, that there's no place for the scholar, there's no place for the ordained, there's no place for the community of faith, it's about what I want to read. They've said, like, that's a complete misunderstanding. But we do read it not through tradition, we read it with tradition. And we understand, like, this, we're not the first person to open up Second Timothy. <laughs> just to state the obvious. When you go and read whatever you go and read, like, this has been going on a long, long time, and so we read with community, we don't, uh, but we don't just read it and that take on all that responsibility ourselves. And here's one, the final one in this. We listen with awe and wonder. Listen means in the Hebrew mind obedience. It's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do. Anybody, anybody identify with that? And I don't know, in, in the presence of know-it-alls and Google-it-alls and, you know, there's just something about coming to the text and being like, do you know, like, things like Ephesians and Paul talks about being elected, predestined. I, I don't know, I'm sure we can digest doctrines right from that, but I'm pretty sure at some level there's an awe and wonder and assurance thing it's meant to do above all else as we read. Not that, I mean, suddenly going, we're talking about people condemned to hell, but there's something about living with an awe and wonder that we have been chosen. That is meant to assure us, not meant to somehow a formulation in our minds that we can necessarily understand. Now, there's a bad way to interpret what I just said, but hey, I'll give you all the benefit of the doubt. You know what I mean? Coming with a bit of awe and wonder to this thing. So for me, this feels really important. So when I come to Scripture, more often than not, because I, I spend time studying it, one of the most helpful practices I find now is just a slow reading of Scripture, which is just reading it a few times slowly and sitting with whatever jumps out. Now, that could go wrong if, if that's your only model. But for some of us, where it's all in our heads and, and all just concepts, there's something, I think, that can just rejuvenate when we listen afresh with awe and wonder. And so I want to finish with this Philippians text that I read earlier and a, a biblical metaphor from the Old Testament. The, the, I was just wrestling with this whole, what is the fruit of reading wisely? Because, you know, inevitably when disagreements will come up, right? That's a given. I'm, what I'm not trying to soften everyone and say, like, so we should all just uh, smooth over our differences. Peace can be disturbed. We shouldn't try and smooth over it. And I think it's okay. I think it's sad that sometimes when we get into disagreements, we forget 
how much we have in common and agreement on. And sometimes it's just worth saying that being faithful to God isn't just about being nice. Loving Jesus with our whole heart, mind, strength, and soul isn't just about being nice. However, through the bumps, the tensions, and difference of opinions, the, the Philippians text reminds us and reminded me that, that within a community that reads wisely, there should be something forming of a foretaste of heaven, something on earth that represents Jesus. Now, this verse has been, our citizenship in heaven has been read to sort of sound very disengaged and otherworldly. And Paul, I think, had in mind, you know, when you're the, whole, the Roman way, wherever you go, you bring the Roman values and you live the Roman life and you bring Rome to wherever you go in the world. And Paul is saying this, subverting that and going, wherever we go on earth, we take the values and the practices of the way of the kingdom of God and we put them in place. And it's, it's interesting too that in the Timothy text we read, I don't know if you clocked this, that, that Paul in chapter 3, verse 10, 11, mentions his own teaching, but very much connected in his way of life, his purpose, his patience, and all the virtues of love and long-suffering. And I think it's saying, look, in a nutshell, it's not enough just to be right. It's not enough just to be orthodox in word, but also for Paul in his way of life, that is putting on all these virtues of love and endurance. And the Philippians text reminds us that as we read it wisely, it should manifest in the fruit of, yes, there'll be moments and difficulties, but in the fruit of a community who represents something so good, so much light, that, that people just see something, say they are citizens of heaven. And, but as well as that, the, te- the Philippians text reminds us of the clash of loyalties of, are we citizens of Rome? <laughs> Are we citizens of uh, Jesus Christ? Are we citizens of Caesar or are we Jesus Christ? Which story are we most captivated by? Which story do we live by? Which story is evidenced in our community? And I chose that text because I think it can take us back to this idea that we said was foundation. To read the Bible well, we read it as a unified story that leads us to Jesus. We are a community who live by an alternative story and the vision are goal is always not winning arguments, but about being drawn into the warmth of the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and living well in light of that, and calling others into the warmth and love of God. Sometimes we get it wrong, and culture corrects us. Sometimes we, culture in the way of Jesus, work together for the common good. Sometimes, though rarely, it's just a neutral small matter, but more often than not, we say our allegiance is, the one, is to the one who gave us his all. Jesus is Lord. Boris Johnson isn't, Nicola isn't, the influencers aren't, Instagram, Google, these things are not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And as we say, we say all that as we pray on earth as it is in heaven. And the metaphor, just to finish and turn into a prayer, is, you know the Jacob wrestling with God? One of my favorite moments in scripture is when Jacob wrestles with God, God wins, Jacob gets his hip knackered, and he starts to lead differently, lead with a limp. And I've been told a number of times last month that the rabbinical schools, the rabbi teachers, engage much better with questions because it draws you into the mystery and meaning and fellowship than any evangelicals do. We tend to like answers. And 
I tell you, there's something so winsome about people who hold, have convictions about who God is, his authority, but have, have a sense of a limp, have a sense of a humility that as they wrestle with these holy scriptures, that they lead with that, they read with that. And actually, I don't know about you, but I can listen to people like that. I can learn from people like that. And I think that starts to take us in the right route. I would love it if you would stand with me just in a moment and allow this prayer to be our prayer together. If you want to read it, it's straight from Philippians. Um, and I'm just going to invite you to say it with me and invite God's Spirit to make something of a, a reality in our lives. Let's say it together. And it is our prayer that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Father, that's our prayer. That's our hope. Would you come? And uh, Spirit, just come and rest on us. Speak to us, we pray.